such a sobering song, our Father. Such a night of being aware of what you have done for us. Give us grace tonight as we continue in worship in this service to let our minds truly understand and grasp the significance of the cross of Calvary and what you have done for us. Regardless how many times we have come to this event in our lives before tonight, let tonight be unique. Let there be clarity of understanding. Let there be a new understanding of what you have done for us, our Father. For we give it you all the praise in Jesus' name. The church said amen. This week, Becky brought home an item for our home that she had purchased on sale somewhere. <clears throat> and it's, um, it's very simply a sign made of wood. It's painted gray uh, with one word written in cursive on the sign. And that word is simply this, grateful. My job was to mount it um, in the place of her choosing, which... I did, and uh, I put it in a strategic place in our kitchen, which is a room I visit way too often. <clears throat> the sign has been up about three or four days now, and it, it gets my attention every time I walk in that room. It reminds me of the, importance of the importance of posturing my heart before the Lord in, in gratitude. It's the first thing I see every morning, it's the last thing I see as we turn out the lights and retire for the evening. And it is so important that our hearts are filled with gratitude because church, everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. And it's a gift we didn't really deserve. You may say, well, I, I worked hard to, at my job and I earned money to get this or get that. Well, you were only able to do that because God put breath in your lungs and he put strength in your body. He gave you a new morning to wake up to with new mercies. Everything we have is a gift. Does anybody agree with me tonight? And we should be overwhelmingly thankful for it every day. The sign itself is not gratitude. But for us at our house, it is a, it, it is a, a symbol it is a reminder for us to be grateful. And with that piece of home decor going up in our home and the significance of this holy week, I have to tell you it brought a certain significance for me for sure because it has reminded me first and foremost why I am grateful for the cross. Is anyone here grateful for the cross tonight? And that's what I want to share for just a very few minutes, why I'm grateful for the cross. I take you to... That very familiar passage in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and I'm going to ask you to stand and read it with me. I'm sure they're going to put it on the screen. Isaiah 53. Would you say it out loud with me, please? Who?
surely. Say that again. Surely. One more time. Surely. He has borne. I know there's more, but would you stop there just, just for a second? Because I just want to say this. <clears throat> this verse should always be a reminder to every one of us. Every time that we are grieving, it is this. If Christ has borne your grief, then why should you carry it? I understand there are people whose heart is grieving tonight over loss of all different kinds, loss of a loved one, a father, a mother, a spouse. I know there's lots of people grieving for lots of different reasons, but I just want us to remember because grief can be so overwhelming and so paralyzing to us. I want you to remember this 53rd chapter of Isaiah because if Christ has borne your grief, then you do not have to carry it, whatever that means for you. So whatever's on your heart tonight, whatever is weighing you down, Isaiah says this. He says, surely, surely, say it with me. He has borne our griefs. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word. Would you be seated, please? Notice the contrast that is there. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Anytime we read that, anytime we quote that, reminds us how good our God is. That's what we need God to be. It's what we want God to be, the one who carries our, 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 our sorrows and bears our griefs, and it's such great news. And yet the contrast here is this. Isaiah says, yet, in spite of how good God is to do that, in spite of how good he has been, yet we esteemed him stricken. We esteemed him smitten, and not by a Roman soldier. That's not what this says. He's smitten by God and afflicted. It's almost as if Isaiah is asking a question. How could a Savior who is so good to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, how could that good God end up smitten by God and afflicted? That's the question we're going to look at for just a few minutes. You and I live in a society where Madison Avenue has taught us to redirect our thoughts by looking at something else. Advertising gurus have done this by designing logos or symbols that represent something else. Put that, that up there, yeah. I can show you any one of these symbols and uh, any number of other famous logos, and you know exactly what they mean. You don't even have to have, even though the name is up there for a couple of them, you don't have to, I don't have to tell you what it stands for. You know exactly what it is. No explanation is required. These logos make you aware of, of certain things without the need of speech, without the need of any evidence. These are symbols representing something else. They communicate to us that whenever you see this, you can expect that. That's exactly what it is. Symbolism is important. It's not only important in our society and in the secular realm, but it's also important in Scripture. And the truth is God uses symbols to help us understand things about Him that we otherwise would not understand. It's His way of making it clear to us. We must always understand that the symbol is not what it represents. It is simply a symbol of something else. There is a difference between the symbol and what the symbol represents. Now, throughout Scripture, you know this, there are many symbols that represent the presence of God. 
When you think of that, you immediately think of the Ark of the Covenant. It represents the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant does. Oil represents the presence of God. Wind represents the presence of God. But when you come to the cross, amongst amongst the many things it does represent, it does not represent the presence of God. In fact, I would even argue, uh, if anything, it would represent the absence of God's presence because it was on the cross where we hear Jesus say, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if the cross doesn't represent the presence of God, what does it represent? For one thing, it represents the judgment of God. Isaiah is teaching us that Christ on the cross was smitten by God. It's in the third chapter of the book of Genesis where we are introduced to the serpent. We know what the serpent represents. The serpent is a symbol of who? Of Satan. And you know the story well. We know exactly what happens. Adam and Eve are told to enjoy the fruit of every tree in the garden except for one. For if they do partake of that, the fruit of that tree, they will surely die. But along comes the serpent with his lie, and contrary to what God says, he tells them, no, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will not surely die, but rather what will happen is this, your eyes will be opened and then you will be like God. You'll be able to see things like God. You'll be like Him. And so Eve is strolling around one day in the garden and she sees that tree and she is enticed by its fruit. She partakes of the, uh, of the fruit of that tree and then she gives one to her husband and suddenly something happens and that is this, they were aware of their nakedness. They realized they were naked and they hid from God. And then you know what happens after that, the blame game uh, begins. The, uh, Adam says, well, the woman made me do it. Isn't that what we say, fellas? Nervous laughter in the room, I hear it. And then Eve says, no, the serpent made, made me do it. But the Lord then addresses the serpent and He says, I will put enmity between you, addressing the serpent, and the woman. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And the word seed here stands for offspring. I'll put enmity between your offspring and and the serpent's offspring. The only issue is this. At that moment, the woman has no seed, and neither does the serpent. So follow me here carefully because here's something that we are seeing. God begins talking to the symbol. He begins talking to to the, the serpent, the symbol, the icon. But he ends up in that conversation then addressing what the icon represents, which is Satan himself. God begins cursing the icon, telling him, he's talking now to the icon, to the symbol. He says, no, you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust all of the days of your life, which is a lifespan that has a beginning and an end. But then when God deals with that which the symbol represents, which is Satan himself, now he's speaking in the prophetic because we're going to be dealing with Satan throughout the ages, not just a lifespan, the lifespan of one serpent. So he switches the conversation, for he says there will be war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So we see God dealing with both the symbol and that which the symbol represents. Are you with me still? And then what you and I know as spiritual warfare begins. And from that day to this, 
the serpent has been doing everything possible to destroy your seed before it reaches fruition. Mama, are you hearing me? He's done everything possible to destroy your offspring, and he's still at work to do it. Well, the serpent shows up again when Moses is having an encounter with God in Exodus chapter 4. God says to Moses, you know this story, throw your stick, throw your walking stick down. And it turned into a serpent. And then he told him to pick it back up again, and it returned to a stick. And from that point forward in Scripture, we see the symbolism of a stick and a snake or serpent. What does it mean? Well, I can tell you what Christ said in John chapter 3, verse 14. He said this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. Do you have that? Say it with me together. And as Moses... And there's something that happened with Moses in the wilderness that became a symbol of what would happen with Christ, which is why you're here in this service tonight. How then did Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, and what's behind all of that? Well, let me just simply remind you, in case the story has slipped from you, it's been too long since you've read it, that the the lifting up of the serpent was what stopped the biting of the snakes. For in the wilderness, the Israelites were being bitten by snakes, and they began to swell up and die. So what happened? Moses gets on his knees, asking God, what can he do about the death that was permeating the society and killing all of the people. And God spoke to Moses and he said this, take some brass and beat it into the shape of a serpent. And when the brass looks like the thing that is biting the people, then lift it up. Those were the instructions. The beating of the brass is a picture of the judgment of God that took it and formed it into the thing that was biting and destroying and killing the people. So when they beat the brass and formed it into a serpent, and then Moses lifted up the serpent. Can I pause here to say something? Isn't it interesting that Christ did not die when he was on the whipping post? History says he was beaten so badly, enough that he should have died on the whipping post. They beat him with a cat of nine tails until his bowels were opened. Everything, every, every bit of, of life within him should have been totally taken from him when he was on the whipping post. But if he had died on the whipping post, he would not have been lifted up. And if he had not been lifted up, Bethesda, we would not have been delivered. Therefore, what happened is Jesus resisted death and he literally held death back because he had to make this correlation between the stick and the serpent. But when they nailed him to the tree, they hung him high and they stretched him wide and they lifted him up. He became on on the cross a picture of what the serpent was in the wilderness. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Bible says that if you lift up the brazen serpent, all of those who are dying 
the desert ground, those who have parched throats, they have scorching fever, they are hallucinating, they are having every reaction that comes from being bitten by the stake. But if you can get those people who are dying on the ground faces, if you can get them to look up, they will be healed. You must understand that the brass serpent in that sense becomes the symbol of the Savior to the people. It was made a serpent, but when it was lifted up, it became a Savior. And those who looked upon it were saved from the poison that was killing them. Even today, modern medicine has the symbol of a stick and a snake to represent healing. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to tell me what has bit, what's bit you. You don't have to tell me what's wrong with you. Because the truth is, every one of us in this room are facing something some sort of sickness, some sort of uh, a problem, some sort of issue, whatever it is, some addictions, some all different kinds of things. You don't have to tell me what's, what has bit you, but I will tell you this. If you will just simply take your head, you may have your face on the ground, your throat may be parched, you may be hallucinating, you may have a raging fever from whatever it is that has, that has bit you and that has poisoned your soul. But if you will take the time to look up you will be healed in the name of Jesus. But then God forbids Moses from keeping the brazen serpent, lest the people worship the symbol and miss the reality of that which the symbol represented. Because the symbol and that which it represents are not the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Read it with me. I like it better when you read it with me. For he made him. Does that cause any believer in this house to say hallelujah? hallelujah. Read it one more time. Come on. For he made him who knew Let me dig in that just a little bit because here's what that means. Christ became it without doing it. He became it without doing it. He was not a liar, but he became a lie for me. He was not an adulterer, but he became adultery for me. He was not an addict, but he became addiction for me. He didn't commit the act, but he symbolized the act when he was raised on the cross. He hung on the cross as the epitome of every vile, ugly, evil, nasty, wicked, dirty, perverted thing that you and I have ever done, church. Maybe you'd like me to say it in a prettier way, but I've asked God for this night by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we get some sense of the weightiness of the cross, lest we ever become too glib about it, lest this ever becomes just another holiday in the year. And not only everything that we had ever done, but everything that we will do, for he looked down the annals of time, and he saw everything that you, everything that I would ever do, and he said, lay it on me now, I choose to pay for it. Anything, any abuser, rapist, 
serial killer, murderer ever did. He became sin. He became it. And he had to cover everything or the cross wouldn't mean anything. Because he had to, because he, he had, because had he not taken every sin upon him on that cross, then you know what? We could only preach to certain kinds of people. There's some kinds of people who maybe didn't, if he had not taken everything, you understand everything. Had he not taken, we can only preach to certain kinds of people. Now the cross is all about perspective. You and I look up to the cross and we see a Savior. But God looks down on the cross and he sees sin. You and I look up and we see righteousness. But God looks from the heavens, he looks down on the cross and he sees wickedness. From heaven's point of view, Christ became the symbol of every wicked, lustful, craving, devious, satanic, witchcraft, abusing, murdering thing that would ever happen in the world. He became the icon. He became the symbol that God had to hit to be able to save it. And at that point, he was smitten by God so that all of your sins and your iniquities would be laid upon him. What God was doing, he was smiting our sins on Christ on the cross so that you and I can live in the verse that says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now you cannot try a man twice for the same crime. Once you've executed judgment on him, you can't come back and judge him again for the same thing because then you would not be just. So if Christ became, church, the picture, became the symbol, the icon of my sins and your sins and God's judgment was on Calvary, then you and I tonight are free from our sins. And as long as we have cast them on Calvary, he cannot judge you again when he already judged you 2,000 years ago. You cannot be judged again. He became sin who knew no sin so that all sinners who could look up on him and their sins would be forgiven. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And since his work was for all sins, and since his work was so complete, that means that we can do this. We can preach the same gospel in the White House that we preach in a crack house in Fort Worth. means that we can preach the same gospel in North Dallas that we would preach in the bush in Nigeria because it was the sins of all mankind. Whatever you did, whatever you are ashamed of, whatever it is that keeps you up at night, Christ did not leave out that sin. Don't you dare come to this altar or come to us and say, but you don't know what I've done. I have gone too far. I have done this and this. I am beyond the grace of God. No, you aren't. He became sin so that you could be free in the name of Jesus. And I'm so glad to be able to see, say this. The same blood that covered your mess is the same blood that's covered my mess. Everything you have ever done was placed upon him. Let me make one more point and I'll finish. We'll go to the table of the Lord just in just a minute.
There were two animals used in the sin offering in the Old Testament. One of them is the lamb, which we know about. But much less, of, uh, much less often has the other one been mentioned, and that is the scapegoat. The scapegoat was the one on whom they placed the iniquities of Israel. And so what they did is placed upon the scapegoat, they smacked him on the hindquarters, and he would go running off into the wilderness, the Bible tells us, carrying their sins away. And I want you to understand this. Christ was not only our sacrificial lamb who paid the price for our sins, he is also the scapegoat carrying my sins away, carrying them off. Come on, bless the Lord for that. Years ago, we sang, he took my sins away. He took my sins away. Am I the only one who remembers it? Keeps me singing. Hallelujah. I'm so glad he took my sins away. He took. You know, I've thought of this often. You know why we sometimes have trouble in today's church? to have real worship. Sometimes Bethesda's a worshiping church and a wonderfully worshiping church. We have experienced so many times of incredible rich presence of the Lord in this place. But I wonder, I spent 33 years as a music pastor. Brent spent almost eight years as a music pastor in this house. And it is both a joy and a privilege and there's times it's like pulling teeth, if I'm honest about it, because you never know Texans can be very affected by the weather. They can be very affected by the Dallas Cowboys. It's all possible. <clears throat> but the reason we have to have musicians with their high-powered instruments and talented they are and singers with incredible vocal ability and God has blessed us abundantly and a choir that Brent has to work so diligently with is simply because if this is what it takes, and I'm proud and pleased and delighted with every one of them, but it takes this to get Bethesda to worship. And then sometimes it takes everything we have. Am I telling the truth, Pastor Brent? It takes everything you have. You know what? There's only one reason for that. It's because you have walked in the doors of this sanctuary not aware of what Christ has done for you. You don't understand it. You have not looked at the vile nature of your sin and understand that he paid the price. He was smitten by God for that which you have done. If you truly understand, understood what Christ did for you, you don't have to have an organ. You don't have to have a choir. You don't have to have a drum set. You don't have to have a tambourine. You don't have to have a guitar or an accordion, Theta. In fact, if you truly understand it, and if you truly allow the depth of this to sink into your soul tonight, you can be mowing the yard or cleaning out a closet and simply say this, but when I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost and how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, it makes me want to shout Sometimes it seems like, oh, this is going to be offensive. Seems like we praise God for stupid stuff sometimes. Got a new car. Hallelujah. 
Nothing wrong with a new car. Ladies, I got two dresses for the price of one at Dillard's. Let's just stop and praise the Lord for that. Church, let me put it in perspective on this Good Friday. When you realize that your very soul was at the gates of hell for what you have done, because, but because of the work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, today you are free, then you will come into the house of the Lord. You'll lift your hands. You'll lift your voice. You will raise a hallelujah. You will stand to your feet, and you will bless the name of the Lord God Almighty. Come on, give him your highest praise. Give him your highest praise. Give him your highest praise. Blessed be the name of the Lord.